With that, go ahead and pull out the the loose sheet of paper inside your worship booklet. On the front, it should say Psalms, the anatomy of the soul. As is our custom, every summer we break from whatever series we've been doing and spend the summer months in the Psalms. We preach Psalm after Psalm. Last week was 55, today is 56, next week will be? You got it. What we do is we change a little bit kind of the subtitle of our Psalms series. This summer, we're going with the subtitle, Anatomy of the Soul. I read a quote to you guys last week from John Calvin. That's where we kind of stole that phrase, the anatomy of the soul. He was prone to call the book of Psalms, also called the Psalter, the anatomy for the soul. Because every emotion you could possibly feel, have felt, and will feel is in the book of Psalms. Book of Psalms are right in the middle of your Bible. If you have a paper Bible, you can open up to Psalm 56 with me. It's probably right in the middle there. And the Psalms are God's inspired hymn book. These were prayers that were sung. And the church, ever since the early church up until today, have been singing these prayers. Singing these Psalms, which are in fact an anatomy of the soul. Roger took off in a timely manner and gave me about five psalms right in the middle of the 50s, which are all depressing laments. They are all David in trouble, David cursing his enemies and asking for help. We saw that last week, and we're going to see it today. Psalm 56 is another lament. It's often put in the lament category. This one, even more so than last week, though, also kind of straddles what's called a thanksgiving psalm. I defined a lament last week as a prayer in pain that leads us to trust, borrowing from a pastor here in Indianapolis by the name of Mark Rogop in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. A lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. This lament is a prayer in pain on behalf of David that leads him to trust. What is weird about this psalm from the traditional lament is David goes in and out of thanksgiving. He's lamenting, help me, Lord. Oh, wait, let me just shout out praise to God and give thanks to God. Oh, wait, I need you to come through for me, though, God. It's, it's this back and forth, lament and thanksgiving. This prayer, uh, this psalm has done wonders for me this week as I've kind of soaked in it and prayed through it myself, and I hope it will do the same to you. Let's, as is our custom here at New City, stand for the reading of God's word from Psalm 56. I'll just read it in its entirety, and then we're just gonna walk through it in our time together this morning. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths, a victim of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps As they have waited for my life, for their crime will they escape? In wrath cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? 
Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We begin where you might assume we would in a psalm like this, and that is with a question, what is your greatest fear? Or we could ask the question a little bit more broadly, what are some of the things you fear. I'll tell you one actually comical one that kind of came to my mind that uh, did wake me up in the middle of the night this past week. And I was envisioning this moment. Um, none of you were here in the same spots, I know, but I mean, the Caps were always here. Megan's always here. You know, we've got people in the same location. So I recognize some of you, but I had this nightmare that I open up Psalm 56. I tell you to turn your Bible and I can't find it. I'm sitting here, and I know where the Psalms are, but it's like I, I just I can't find it, and I'm standing here for like hours at a time, and as, as embarrassing as it is, a pastor trained theologically, I can't find Psalm 56. Others in public speaking will often tell you the fear of like, you get up here and your flies open, or, or everything falls down, or you trip and fall, like all of those are real in my mind. But I also have deep fears. Serious fears and anxieties, as I'm guessing, you do too. A study that has been mentioned from this pulpit before, Roger used it a number of weeks ago, was a study by Chapman University in which they they surveyed the top 10 fears of Americans in the year 2022, so this is recent, and they came up with 10. There are 10, top 10 fears of Americans in 2022. And all of these answers got 55 to 60% answers as a fear. And the answers were either very afraid or afraid. What are these 10 greatest fears? Maybe you can relate. Number one, corrupt government officials. Number two, people... I love becoming seriously ill. Russia using nuclear weapons. People I love dying. The U.S. becoming involved in another world war. Number six, pollution of drinking water. Seven, not having enough money for the future. Eight, economic financial collapse. Nine, pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. And number 10, biological warfare. What struck me is not that people are afraid of those. What struck me is that all of them are possible really close to us. Some of them are happening, have happened and will happen, but all of that list could happen tomorrow. And 60% of all Americans are very afraid of those things. Maybe as I was reading them, you are as well. Or let's not get so big and global. Let's come local. What about the Indianapolis police chief saying Indianapolis is more violent and crime-laden this year than ever before? The only close year last year. We're not trending in the right direction. We have lots to fear, humanly speaking. 
And yet the refrain of Psalm 56 is what can man do to me? Based upon the list that I just answered, maybe the fears that the Spirit brought to mind in you, your answer could be a lot. What can flesh do to me? Well, it could bring economic collapse. I could not have enough money for the future. It could pollute my drinking water. People I love die. Corrupt government officials. Russia could nuke us. All of these things. What can flesh do to me? A lot. But that's not what the psalm is going for, is it? David in Psalm 56 is going for the answer. What can man do to me? Answer, nothing. They, man, humanity, anyone, anything, cannot touch you. Brother and sister, you are invincible until God says otherwise. Or let's look at it another side. What is the worst that man can do to you? Kill you. That's not a bad thing. What can man, what can flesh do to us in Christ? Nothing. When Jesus is on your side. And so friends, the one main argument I want to put forth for us this morning from Psalm 56 is that trusting in and relying upon God and his word can be a great antidote to fear. Trusting in and relying upon God and his word can be a great antidote to fear. The way we're going to proceed this morning is I just want to walk through Psalm 56, and as we go, we'll make some, uh, I'll make some observations and, and hope to apply this text to our lives in a few ways this morning. But first, I want you to look at verse 0. You're like, wait, what is verse 0? Verse 0 is the italics portion of the psalm. It's called the superscription. It is a part of the original Hebrew in every old manuscript we have. It is a part of the psalm. And it's to be read as a part of the psalm. And so what does this one tell us? Well, some weird things, it sounds at first. To the choir master, according to the dove on far off terebinths. What is going on with the dove on far off terebinths? Um, if you have an older translation, like the New American Standard 77 or the King James Bible, it will like, it's got a lot of weird long words because it just takes the Hebrew letters and turns them into English. But this is what it says, the dove on far off terebinths. Or another translation, the silent dove that's far away. The New International Version goes with a dove on distant oaks. The terebinth is a tree. We're not exactly sure what this reference is, but there are a couple leading candidates. Um, one, and this is probably my favorite, I think it could be the tune. This psalm is to be chanted or, or sung rhythmically to the tune of a dove on far off terebinths. That tune is obviously lost to us. It could also reference musical instrumentation or some sort of arrangement of this psalm. We're not exactly sure. Or the third leading candidate the dove on far off terebinths means it's some sort of phrase meant to portray the mood of the psalm that the original readers would have known. You're supposed to sing this like, I don't know, in this mood, minor, major, um, low, lamenty. I'm not exactly sure, but any of those are possibilities. This is a mictum of David, a, a psalm or song of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So, Let's pause here for a moment. This is the ninth psalm. If you would have started reading in Psalm 1 and going through the Psalter, this is the ninth psalm that you would have seen so far with a historical title connecting it to events in David's life. 
more closely related to the Psalms around this. This is the fourth one in a series of eight, right here in the mid-50s of the Psalter with historical titles. Last week, you remember Psalm 55. Psalm 55, we looked at, it was the historical setting of Absalom's rebellion. King David is king, he's leader of the known world in Psalm 55, and yet his son is marching on Jerusalem to murder him with a bunch of David's old buddies, guys like Ahithophel. Some of David's mighty men changed teams, and they're on their way to get him. The next psalm, which is our topic this morning, is Psalm 56, but it actually happens before in history. Psalm 56, the Philistines seized him in Gath. That is before David is king. Psalm 56 is being written when David is still a normal person. He's a musician, a servant in King Saul's kingdom, reign. He's a part of King Saul's group. He often played the harp to calm King Saul down. But as you know the story, if you're reading the Samuels, on a couple of occasions, Saul tries to kill David. I don't know if he didn't like the harp playing or or what, but he throws spears at David. Eventually, it climaxes because uh, Saul finds out that David was actually God's anointed king, not Saul. David was the man after God's own heart, not Saul. So Saul pours all of his resources into hunting down David to kill him. So David goes on the run. You can read about this in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. It's only six verses. We're given six verses in 1 Samuel about this event. David is on the run for his life from King Saul. And you might be thinking, as David often was, he had his friends, David and his mighty men. The text draws special attention to the fact that they weren't with him. David left in haste, and he is alone. He's on the run from the most powerful person in the land, King Saul. And what does David think? Where's the safest place for David to go? David thinks, I'll go into one of the leading cities of the Philistines, to a place called Gath. The king there, the king of the Philistines, his name's King Achish. The city of Gath, another fun fact, was the hometown of a guy named Goliath who David beheaded. That's, that's a better shot. That, that's a safer place than being out here with King Saul getting me. So think about what's going on in David's life when he pins the words that I just read. The most important and powerful man in the Middle East, King Saul, is chasing him, and David is walking into a treacherous and dangerous city where he killed their strongest warrior just years before. He is alone, He has enemies in front of him and enemies behind him, and he is afraid. I use Psalm 34 as our call to worship, because if you had spent some time with Psalm 34, you would also know from its verse zero that it was written about the same period of time, when he ran to Gath and was captured by King Achish. Psalm 34 and Psalm 56 are close companions about the same events. Psalm 34 gives us a little bit more. Not to spoil it, but David gets away. How does David get away? King Achish captures him, and you might know the story. He pretends to be crazy. He pretends to be mad. And King Achish is like, we have enough of these guys in our world. Let let him go. I don't want David. And he goes. 
But Psalm 34, your call to worship this morning, told you a little bit more to the story. David didn't get away because he faked madness. David didn't get away because of his human ingenuity and his human and earthly resources. Psalm 34 over and over and over again said, David prayed and God delivered him. David prayed and God got him out of the situation. Sure, he used David's human means of pretending to be mad, but our human and earthly resources, friends, don't overcome fear. They don't deliver us. God does. And check this out. One last thing before we move on. We're only in verse zero. I promise you we'll pick it up. Alec Mateer in his commentary on the Psalms drew my attention to this. 1 Samuel 21, verse 12, the events of Psalm 56. 1 Samuel 21, 12 is the only spot where it is recorded that David was afraid. It's the only spot in the historical retelling of events in David's life. 1 Samuel 21, 12, the only spot that it's recorded, David was afraid. What that means, friends, is that Psalm 56 could be the psalm for fear. It could be the psalm for your anxieties and my anxieties. When afraid, New City, let's make Psalm 56 a dear friend. Look at verses 1 through 4. Let's start to walk through this. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. So there's the situation. That's 1 Samuel 25, wrapped up in two poetic verses. What does David do? Verse 3, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Verse 3 there, when I'm afraid, I, I love this. It's, it's literally, in the day when I am afraid, then I will trust in God. In the day that I'm afraid, the old King James captures this well. In the day when I fear, in that very moment, I will consciously put my trust in God. Trust being to, to believe in, to rely upon, and to adhere to. David is saying, and he's preaching to himself, and giving the people of God a song to sing that goes something like this. In the very moment that I'm afraid, I will knowingly rely upon God. I will intentionally, in that very day, in that very moment, when I'm afraid, when I'm anxious, when I'm worried, I will trust in God. That's the antidote to fear. That's how he can give thanks in the very middle of a lament. A commentator by the name of Derek Kidner elaborates by saying, David is teaching us that faith is a deliberate act here. And it's in defiance of one's emotional state. I love that. Faith, friends, in God I trust, whose word I praise, in God I trust, that is a deliberate act in defiance of how you're feeling, in defiance of your fear, in defiance of your circumstances. The point here, friends, is that faith is not passive. 
It doesn't just come to you by sitting back and waiting. You will not overcome your anxieties by sitting back in the easy chair of faith. Fear is overcome with spiritual action. Faith is active. We trust in the Lord. We lean into and envision a life in which we are doing all the things that we do in life in partnership with God. We in Him, He in us. When you wake up tomorrow, fearing whatever it is you fear, trust in the Lord. He's right there with you. When you lay your head down at night and anxiety is washing over you, the Lord is there. When you enter into that meeting that you're stressed out about, you're doing so with God. When you spend your free time doing whatever it is you enjoy, you're doing so with Jesus in partnership with Him. When money is tight, the Lord is with you in that. When your marriage is in shambles and you're fighting for your marriage, Jesus is there. Children, students, when you're afraid to go to school, when you're worried about the dark, when you think something's under your bed or in the closet, Jesus is with you closer than your breath. He's right there with you. You just need to believe it. And when do we especially need to hear that, that God is near? It's when, at least me, when, when I'm afraid. When I've forgotten the nearness of Jesus, that is when I need to remind myself of this the most. Verse 4 it serves as a refrain. It's kind of like a repeated bridge in our more contemporary songs. It's a bridge that's repeated. You're just drilling this into your mind. Why do I think that this is a refrain? It's like a, 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 a repeated bridge. Well, because it is repeated. In verses 10 and 11, it's expanded. This verse, verse 4, let me just read it to you again. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Repeated in verse 10 and 11. Quoted in Psalm 118, verse 6, and drumroll, the New Testament quotes that verse at the very end of the book of Hebrews. Remember Hebrews, the whole context is suffering. They're Jewish Christians being beheaded and sawn in two and killed for their faith. And at the very end of Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews is concluding his letter sermon with some practical encouragements. Some of them go like this, do not be afraid. Love your fellow Christian. Be hospitable. Have people in your homes. It's a command. Hold marriage in honor among all people. Flee sexual immorality. Be free of the love of money. And guess what he goes on to say? So that we can say with the psalm, it's in God whose word I praise. In God I trust. What can flesh do to me? How do you get to a place where you can say those things? Friends, we, we loosen our grip on all the stuff here. All of the earthly things that we love and cherish so much. So that we can say, what can flesh do to me? Flesh can't do anything. Compared to God, all of the things of this earth, the enemies... The kings, the presidents, the nuclear bombs, the pollution, the viruses, they are powerless compared to the sovereign king of the universe. Therefore, trust him, love him, obey him. 
The psalm tells us where we trust, where, what is the object in God. As I pushed back on last week, remember, this is not just a general trust. This is not believe in yourself. Don't do that. This is not trust the universe. It'll all work out. This is not karma. This is not just human ingenuity and effort. This faith, this trust is in a person. It is the God of the scriptures. And where does faith find its content? Look at verse 4. In God, whose word I praise. The word is kind of important in the book of Psalms. We have Psalms like 119, which are Psalms about the word of God, about the scriptures. You have Psalm 119, the largest chapter in the Bible, all about the word of God, the God who speaks to us, and he speaks to us through his word. The word is very important in the Psalms, but get this, David is praising the word. He's singing to God about the Bible, praising the Bible. God's word, I praise. Let that sink in for a moment. David loves his Bible. He meditates on his Bible. And notice how he does so. He asks this question, what can flesh do to me? He's reading and memorizing the scriptures, and he's doing so while reasoning. He's thinking. He's asking questions. Friends, he's doing theology. While on the run from Saul and headed towards King Achish in Gath. New City, I desire for us to be men and women deeply committed to the Bible. I want us, I want myself to be ever increasing in my reading, meditating upon, memorizing, and enjoying God's word. I hope you join me in that journey. I long, I dream for men and women to spend time with God's word morning and evening. I long for men to lead their families in Bible reading, and set the spiritual temperature for their families. I long for moms and dads to read the Bible to their children regularly. And for the Lord's Day worship gathering of God's people to be saturated with the Word of God, which I hope you will have noticed is a reality. And because it is, for the people that make up this gathered worship to make it a priority and to prepare for this time, the night before and the morning of. And in many ways, this is happening. I'm not offering this as a pastoral rebuke because I'm aware of a bunch of people not doing these things. That's not what's going on here. If it is, that's between you and the Lord. We just need this reminder. My own heart needs this reminder. We, myself included, can so quickly neglect the most important thing in our lives. Jesus and being with him. Sitting at his feet like Mary. Our schedules become so packed, so many extracurricular events, rising early, staying out late, sports here and sports there and things I want to do. I got to work out. I got to do this. I got to read. I got to think. Got to work. And the first thing that we pump from our lives 
is spending time with Jesus, which is the only thing you really need in your daily rhythm. Brothers and sisters, without the word of God, David is very clear on this. Without the word of God, and we could say, as an aside, the spirit of God working through the word of God, but what, without the word, there is no growth. Without the word, there is no overcoming your fear. We can get a decent way through our willpower, through our habits, raw effort. Oh, come on. But without God's holy, authoritative, and inspired word, we are limited, friends, in our spiritual growth and our vibrancy. And maybe most scary, without this word, which David is praising, we don't know what God is like. We actually end up just making God exactly like us. He votes like us. He spends his money like us. He spends his time like us. Without the scriptures, you do not know God. That's why David is saying, oh God, I trust. And in his word, I'm praising his word. So friends, let's be people of the Bible to read it and sit with it and sing it and pray it and memorize it and do so often. Daily? Do so with people. Do so alone. Listen to it. If you're struggling as a reader, it's literally intended to be read again and read again and read some more. It is what many scholars call meditation literature. The Bible is unlike any book there is. It is intended to be chewed and thought through again and again and again. We will never exhaust the truths of God's word. And in it and in it alone, we see and we know God as Father and Lord and Redeemer. And so what David goes on to do in this psalm, verses 5 through 7, he recounts the enemies and how they're after him, which we kind of covered in our historical review of verse 0. Look with me at verse 8. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What a comforting verse. There's, um, in the original Hebrew, there's some, some nerdy, beautiful, poetic work going on here. The words for tossings and bottle are almost the same word, off by one letter. And the words for kept count and book are also nearly identical. In, in our English, this would be very poetic. And you would, you would hear it in the cadence. They'd sound similar, just like a, a poem in English. But the, which is beautiful. It's very wonderful. But the real beauty of this verse lies actually in its content. You have kept count of my tossings. The Lord himself has kept account of your tossings, your wanderings, your pain, your discomforts. The Lord knows them. He sees them. He's recorded them. And lest we think he does so at a distance, I see you way over there, person struggling. Let me just keep count. That's another painful experience. That's another painful thought. Ooh. He's not at a distance. He's not record-keeping way off in heaven, far away. Why? Because he is close enough for David to request that he grab his, his tears. 
Grab these tears, Lord. Keep them in your bottle. If you are brokenhearted, if you are struggling, if you are lamenting like we looked last week or this week, God is near enough not only to see you, but to catch your tears in his bottle. You're not going through life alone. You're not going through your painful experiences solo. You are in the hands of a good God and a good Father. And He just so happens, good news for us, to be the sovereign King and Creator of the entire universe. That one cares for you in your pain, sees you, knows you. He is near. And if in Christ by faith, Friends, God loves you and He likes you. He takes delight in you. He likes to hear you pray to Him and He likes to answer your prayers. Verses 10 and 11 repeat, that's the refrain again, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, repeats it twice. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. But here He changes one thing. What can man do to me. Verse 4 said, what can flesh do to me? Flesh being the word, if we were kind of like a paraphrase, it'd be like, what can mere weak mortals do to me? It's humanity in our weakness. What can mere mortals do to me? And then in verse 11, he broadens it. What can man do to me? This is the, the general phrase for humanity in general, for creation. He's broadening the question, what can anything, what can anyone What can any of those top 10 fears of Americans in 2022 do to you? Nothing. Jesus is on our side, seen clearly in his living, a perfect life in our place, in his dying on the cross, in his glorious resurrection from the dead. His nearness is seen because Jesus is in glory right now, a a body, a human body in the presence of divine God praying for you. And it will ultimately be seen when he comes again and returns for his bride to be with us in a new heavens and a new earth. Because of that, therefore, I will not be afraid. In the very day, in the very moment when I fear, friends, we will trust in the Lord. God can get David out of the predicament that he was in. Truly, think about this. If God can get David out of the predicament that he was in when David wrote or sung Psalm 56, the Lord can bring us through whatever is going on. Even if that bringing us through actually is death. Because through that door, our faith is turned to sight. And we are with him forever. With that in mind, What can man do to me? What can the fear of nuclear or biological war do to me? What can the fear of my loved ones becoming ill do to me? What can water pollution and sicknesses do to me? Nothing. So friends, I encourage you, and I'm encouraging my own heart to trust in Jesus, whether this is the first time you do so or the millionth time. Trust afresh in the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. And that can be a great antidote to your fear. Maybe even a cure. That can do more for you than your counselor or your therapist or the prescription. 
I'm not anti any of those things. But if that is the crutch and you're not trusting in the Lord, that's only going to get you so far. David goes on to conclude the psalm with more praise and worship. That, that word of vows and thank offerings, I could nerd out real quick on the five major offerings in the Old Testament. I won't do that. It's simply a way of David saying, I, I will bring my worship to you. I will express my love and worship as I offer to you the sacrifices that are due your name. It's also interesting as we conclude here, the thank offerings were the only ones done at a meal. They were the ones done in which you enjoyed food, which we are about to do together. So verse 13, we will conclude, for I have delivered my soul from, I haven't, you have, God has delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling. It sounds a lot like Psalm 116, a psalm that we sing here. And so I'll conclude our time together the same way an old Presbyterian by the name of James Montgomery Boyce concluded his very sermon on Psalm 56. James Boyce said, so, quote, I, so I end this way. If you really want to move out of fear and out of despair and out of loneliness and bask in God's sunshine, live looking upward always into the face of Jesus Christ. Then, and only then, you will find yourself saying firmly, in God I trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And if you need a reminder, more than just my words harping on this for the last 30 minutes, if you need a confidence boost, even beyond this sermon, God's word going over you, I get it actually, Take Psalm 56 with you. Pray through Psalm 56 this week. But if you need a real confidence boost, especially meditate upon the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, in which we experience, in one sense, a thanksgiving offering. It's just not the blood of bulls and the flesh of a sacrificed animal. The confidence that we need to trust in the Lord afresh is the broken body and the blood shed by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross and through his resurrection. That's the table to which we go now. We do this every week. We say that this is a table if you are trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins.